in the, in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask your blessing on our efforts again, as we always do when we start to study Holy Scripture. Help us to open our minds and our hearts to truly hear what it is that you want us to hear. Grant us the strength and the grace to sort of decipher and read between the lines of John's Gospel so that we can pick out the essence and the true meaning of the words that are there. So we ask your blessing on our efforts, not only tonight, but as we go forward uh, through this holy season of Lent and cover the rest of uh, these chapters, as well as end with celebrating the, the great feast of Easter. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Tonight, before we get into chapter 18, uh, which was the assigned uh, lesson for this evening, I'd like to do a little review of where we've been, what we've learned, and how much of that we've retained. Um, through Because the rest, and this is important, because the rest of this gospel is really the carrying out of the things that we have already learned in chapters 13 through 17. As we've said before, chapters 13 through 17 was the culmination of Jesus' mission in teaching and setting things straight. And by that I mean uh, letting people know that the Jewish law or the 613 laws that made up the Jewish law, quote unquote, uh, were not really as important as the Jewish people were making them out to be at that time. Remember, those laws came from the Ten Commandments. And over a period of a thousand years, give or take a little, from the time of actually 1,500 years, from the time of Moses down to the time of Christ, is when all of these 613 Jewish laws were built up. Moses didn't write them all, okay? Even though many people uh, seem to believe that or want to believe that, Moses did not write uh, those 613 laws. He dictated dietary laws, and he dictated other laws that were pure common sense, primarily for hygiene. And yes, he did expand on the Ten Commandments, but not to the point of 613. Over a period of time, the dietary laws and some of the others for hygiene came into um, the mode of worship. And that was not what they were intended for. Uh, some of you, if you think about it, some of those laws got really nothing to do with worshiping the God of Israel. All right. So, there were many changes made, and uh, that is part of the reason why the Jewish uh, high priest and the Jewish followers tried to get rid of Jesus, because they didn't want their way of life changed. They were happy with being the chief, uh, pardon the expression, the chief honchos of the temple, and 
all of the other people had to bow and scrape to them, and they kind of were comfortable with that. Jesus said, no, that is not the way uh, that God wants it. And so he started changing it. And he said, really, if you take all of those 13 or 613 laws, you can kind of boil them down to two. Love of God and love of neighbor. Now, of course, that's being rather simplistic. And as we go through uh, the entire uh, New Testament, we find out exactly what he means by that. And there's so many things, many details that have come out of that. But the essence is, take those 613 laws and you can kind of boil them down to two. Love of God and love of neighbor. All right? So that is one of the main reasons why the Jewish people tried, or the Jewish leaders, you might say, tried to get rid of him. All right. So what we want to do tonight before we get into chapter 13, which is a relatively short chapter, but with a lot of meaning in it, uh, I want to review kind of where we've come from, all right? And you've all, I hope, got a copy of this agenda for this evening, all right? So it is, I was going to do sort of a, a quiz and have you kind of give me these items, and then I thought, well... I might be sitting on a lot of hands here, or somebody might be sitting a lot of hands and and uh, not really remember some of these things. But it's it's really important because from now on, from chapters 19 or 18 on, which is the path and passion, death, and resurrection. But if you really really say the passion and death, the crucifixion and death of Christ. That is where Christ carries out many of the things that he has taught us in the previous chapters, 13 through 17, all right? And so kind of let us look at that. Okay. In chapter 13, we learn one important thing probably learn more, but let's put it this way. The most important thing is that we learn that Jesus was fully aware of what he was doing and what was going to happen. Some of the other gospel writers kind of leave it vague as to whether he did or whether he didn't. And they write it in more of a real-time historical uh, sense. John tells us right up front, First words out of his mouth, you might say, is that in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, is in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God, and the Word the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, of course, he's referring, when he says the Word, he's talking about Jesus himself, all right? And all the way through, you've got to remember that in the Gospel of John, John is looking at it and sort of giving his viewpoint, his interpretation of the life of Christ. But he's doing it from a point of view long after it happened. When he has had time to research and think about it, pray and meditate it, meditate upon it, and then look back and see not only what Christ did, but what was the theological meaning of what he did. 
And that is what we want to explore tonight. Okay. So he knew what he was doing right from the beginning, right? He gave us many examples of telling us that he was from God. And this was an important point with him, that he was here on a mission given to him by God the Father. And that he was sent by the Father. And this idea of being sent by the Father, particularly in this culture, was very important. Somebody asked me one time, why was Jesus called the Son of God if he was equal to God? And that might sound like a stranger, you know, a ho-hum question, but not really. In this culture, the relationship between a father and a son was so close, so tight, that it was almost as if they were the same person. And that is what it was intended to be. And, of course, when the writers of all the Gospels tried to explain this, they had to use common, everyday language that people would understand. And so they continued to use that relationship, and even Jesus used that relationship of being the Son of God. All right? So that those people at that time would understand the close-knit relationship between a father and a son. Remember, in this culture, if a wealthy father died, everything that he owned would go automatically to the eldest son, bypassing the wife. And that is why you hear so much about taking care of widows and orphans in the Gospels. Now, if the wife or the family had no sons, then the wife would inherit the estate or whatever was there. But if there was a son, even if there was more than one, the eldest would always inherit everything. Then he also inherited the responsibility of taking care of the mother and any other siblings. Is that clear? Right? And that is why this idea of being the son of the father was carried right through up to Jesus. Okay? Because it was the only way that everybody could kind of understand the relationship. If he had talked about, I am the second person of the Trinity, people would, you know, say, what does that mean? And down through history, there would be all kinds of debate as to what that meant. Uh, I think it's a little clearer in the way it is now. All right. The mission, the mission that he was given was like a commission. He was commissioned to come and be the sacrificial lamb because he was perfect and divine. It was something that mankind could never be. And it was something that had to be offered back to the Father in reparation for the sins of all mankind. So only a perfect and a divine 
sacrifice could be acceptable. Now you might say, well, gee, you know, couldn't the father make allowances? And, uh, you know, it, it sounds so uh, elitist. Well, unfortunately, perfect or perfection and divinity has its rules. And just like nature has its rules and laws, and we must obey them. Nobody picked out Haiti or nobody picked out Chile as, uh, you know, the place that the next earthquake would happen. These are part of laws that are in vogue or set up at the time of creation. So, what we've learned here is that Jesus was given a mission by the Father as the Son representing the Father and representing the sacrificial lamb that was necessary uh, to be offered back to him, to the Father, in uh, reparation for the sins of mankind. He also came to teach mankind to love, love unconditionally. In prior times, even though the laws that Moses had set up contained unconditional love requirements for everybody, it didn't actually work out that way. All right. In the book of Deuteronomy, there is that law of love of God and love of neighbor, but it was never really practiced. The people at the time of Christ and all the way down for the 2,000 years between Abraham and Christ, love extended only to the immediate family. And you didn't show affection, you didn't show even kindness um, to any uh, stranger. Maybe to the next door neighbor, or maybe, you know, to some person that had befriended you through a business arrangement or association of some kind. But things were very different than they are today. People did not give out their names um, so willingly. Uh, you've all been to meetings, I'm sure, where the first thing you do when you come in the door is they hand you a little paper tag and you put your name on here. Hi, I'm, you know. I'm Pete. Okay. They didn't do that in those days because names were so important due to the fact that most people were illiterate and could not write. And so by giving their name, particularly to a stranger or to somebody who was not real close to them, was like giving them authority giving them something of their personal self. A good example is when Moses meets God in the burning bush. You're all familiar with that story, I'm sure. If you haven't, go see Cecil B. DeMille's movie, The Ten Commandments. He's intrigued by this bush that he sees that is burning, and yet it's not burning up. It's not being consumed. So he goes over and it is God in this burning bush, represented by the fire. And God tells him that he's 
designated or designating Moses to go back to the Jewish people and to the Pharaoh and persuade the Pharaoh to lead these people out of Egypt. And after this back and forth conversation, because Moses really didn't want to do it because he wasn't in good standing with either uh, the Pharaoh and his family who he'd lived with most of his life or the Jewish people because he had killed. He had killed an Egyptian and he witnessed the killing of an Egyptian, uh, of a Jewish person by an Egyptian. So he wasn't in good standing whatsoever with either side. Jesus said, never mind, you know, I'll be with you and so forth and so on. Moses asked Jesus, I mean, Moses asked God, the Father, what is your name? That sounds like a strange question to ask, you know. But what he's really doing is, what authority do I have to show these people that you are giving me this responsibility? And that's when God says, tell them that I am who am. And so the I am part of that phrase became so sacred down through Jewish history that they would never even utter it or voice it out loud, not even in prayers or in liturgies or ceremonies of any kind. It became almost the most sacred phrase or word that they could possibly uh, utter. And so they didn't utter it, and that is how the word Lord, in place of Yahweh or God, came into use. Jesus also revealed the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Trinity, although the word Trinity is not used in any of the Gospels, it is there in the various descriptions uh, that the Gospel writers give us. And in John's Gospel specifically, we learn more about the Holy Spirit than we do in the other three put together. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is the first time in history that we learn about it. Jesus also is telling us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That seems to be difficult for a lot of people to understand. All right, but what he's really saying is that he is the channel to the Father. He is the way, all right? And for many years, we don't know exactly how many, but 20, 30 years after Christ's uh, death and resurrection and ascension, the Christian movement of Jews who then accepted Christ was called the way. And it wasn't until towards the end of the first century before they were really called Christians. So the way, the truth, and the life. Like we've said many times, God, not just Father or Son or Holy Spirit, but God, the combined trinity, is love itself but it is also truth itself and also perfect 
justice, which we don't hear about in the gospel, but you hear a lot about it in Paul's letter, particularly to the Romans. So, the way, the truth, and when you absorb that and observe that, then the life comes into being. And we're talking about eternal life, not physical or earthly life. We're talking about eternal life. And as I said last week and pointed out, that when it, when you have dedicated yourself to God through Jesus and have developed a relationship and you live according to the teachings of Christ in that relationship, then eternal life begins in you now. Not when you die or sometime in the future or at the end of the world. It begins now when you accept that. And that is why it is so important. Because the moment you start to live in a relationship with Jesus Christ, your exterior world is not really going to change a lot. But over a period of time, you are going to change and absorb that way, that truth, and that kind of life. And then things might change for the better. But whether they do or not, you will always realize that you have Christ within you. And you can handle things far better than you ever could before. It is a foregone conclusion that with the knowledge, the true knowledge and understanding and acceptance of the fact that Christ lives in you, you can then handle a great deal more than you ever could before. Praying in the name of Jesus is sort of like a real relationship in itself. And as we've said many times, once you have committed yourself, once you decide that you are going to reorient your life, your doctor appointments, your your fun time, you know, your leisure, whatever, in accordance with this belief. That is what the relationship is all about. So then when you are praying, your praying takes on a totally different attitude. And you're not going to be praying for something that is not within the role that God has given you. So your praying is going to change. And your prayer will be more of a prayer of thank you, thanksgiving, than it is of gimme. I always call them the gimme prayers. Lord, give me this, give me that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I once knew a very, well, at least a, a gentleman who appeared to be very holy, and I believe that in his mind and heart, he was. But he confessed to me one time that he didn't pray unless he needed something. And if he thought it was too minor, he wouldn't bother God to even pray for that. And I thought, mm -mm, you missed the point. God wants you to come, regardless of how minor it is, and talk about it in prayer. 
So your prayer is really a conversation with your very best friend, right? It is not a string of Our Fathers and Hail Marys, although that can be part of your prayer. But what God really wants from you is, what's your day like? What did you accomplish? You know, did you do anything for someone else? And if not, why not? Maybe you had a good reason, whatever. But that's what he's interested in. And in turn, you learn a great deal about God. One of the things I highly recommend is that you don't stop reading. One of the things to enhance a relationship is to learn as much about God as you possibly can. And by reading other material that other people have written so that you understand where they are coming from. And that's what this book is all about. Now, I don't mean to, I'm not pushing books, you know, I'm not selling anything. Uh, but this is a very good book to help you see how other people understand a given point about Jesus Christ. And most of this is about the Father's commissioning Christ to go forth and fulfill that specific mission that we've talked about. All right. But there's so many others. What I'll do before this course ends is bring in a whole long list of recommended reading. Some of it is very light. Others uh, are a little heavy. This is a little bit on the heavy side, I have to admit. But it's certainly worthwhile. Again, the name of Jesus. Uh, the fourth commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of God in vain. Has very little to do with swearing. And yet, Agnes, how many of your children think that that's what it means? Yeah. Okay. All right. It, and we grew up with that idea, didn't it? Didn't we? The idea that thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. It was all about swearing. Very little. Because if you think about it, and change the word from name to person, you get a better understanding of the meaning. Thou shalt not take the person of God in vain. It goes far beyond just taking his name and using it improperly. And remember, God really doesn't have a name outside of I am, or the equivalent Yahweh. All right? And you don't hear many people say, oh, Yahweh. <laughs> it would sound a little strange, I'm sure. The commandment is really, do not take God for granted. That's what it means. And yes, swearing is a small part of that. Because if you're using God's name improperly, whether it be Jesus or Yahweh or Lord or whatever, yes, you are infringing on that taking the person of God in vain. So it's more than just swearing, right? Because the idea of name in this culture was extremely important and it represented the whole person. 
not just what he or she was called. Jesus bestows peace, a divine peace on his apostles and extends that to anyone and everyone who commits themselves to a relationship with Christ or, as I prefer to say it, commits themselves to a relationship with God through Christ. Remember, Christ is the face of God. Christ is the one that we can think of whenever we're thinking of God in any of the three persons. All right. And lastly, I think we can visualize the idea of the relationship of the branches to the vine. The vine is what remains year after year after year when we're talking about grapevines. At this time of the year, if you went through a vineyard, you'd see them all pretty dried and shriveled up and hanging on the wires that they're attached to, but there are no branches. It is the branches that will start to spring forth and produce fruit. And of course, the analogy is really, it is the vine that is always there to give nourishment and sustenance and strength and direction to the branches. We then are the branches to produce the fruit of love that God has asked of us. All right. So, these are seven items. Interestingly enough, seven. Anybody understand the meaning of the number seven? Perfect number, yes. Perfect number in Jewish culture, yes. Now, the point that I really want to make is that if you take all of that and keep it in mind as you go forth and read the next four chapters, 18 through 21, you will see how Christ fulfilled all of those, all right? Or at least through, uh, through chapter 20. And it's so important that you see that because what John is telling us is that the divine one from God has taken the place of mankind to make reparation for the sins, for his own sins, the sins of all mankind. And as a result, that was fulfilling the mission that the Father gave him. And once that is realized, that the mission has now been totally fulfilled, the Father then accepts that and glorifies the Son through the resurrection. And that is the Father's way of acknowledging acceptance of what the Son did on behalf of all mankind. And once we accept that in our minds, then we participate in the benefits of Christ's passion, death, and resurrection. Does that understand? Understood? 
So I know that you've heard this, you know, year after year after year. But what I really want you to start thinking about is how does it apply to you personally? All right. And the other thing that you must really keep in mind is if you look at the last uh, last paragraph on this page that I have given you here. We must also remember that this is about a cosmic battle between the powers of good versus evil with the followers of Christ, almost as pawns, on one side and the Jews and Romans on the other. Obviously, we know who wins the battle and so our reason for celebrating it each year is to keep fresh in our minds what God, out of divine love, did for each one of us. It is often said that if there was only one person on earth, Christ would have come and done the same thing. So you must, must take this personally. All right? He did it for you. Down throughout the ages. And that is for everyone down throughout the ages. And what did he do? What did he give us? He gave us his only begotten son. So that we might have life. Eternal life. That's why it's capitalized. And have it abundantly. So that takes place over the next three or four chapters. And that is what we want to get into tonight. Any questions on this so far? Yes. The Jewish leaders of the time, yes. Okay. Now, and I'm not being, uh, you know, anti-Semitic or anything of that kind. I'm just stating a fact. And the reason that the Jewish people are so involved in this is because down through 2,000 years before Christ, from the time of Abraham up until the crucifixion of Christ, the Jews were the chosen people of God. And God brought them along. He sort of developed them out of the family of Abraham and brought them along for 2,000 years, taking care of them through many, many, many scrapes and battles and problems where they turned against God many times, and yet he constantly took them back. And when he sends his own son to them, they reject the son. And it's sort of like, all right, guys, I've had it with you. And you're going to get caught up in this problem and bear the brunt of the problem for the rest of your life. Now, we must remember that we are not blaming the Jews for the death of Christ, as many people in the past did or tried to do. Christ came out of a free will for all mankind. But the Jews were instrumental there because of their rejection of the Messiah that was sent by the Father. So they were the instruments more so than the Romans. They manipulated the Romans to take the upper hand, you might say, in the crucifixion of Christ. 
but the Romans wouldn't have done that if the Jews hadn't pushed them into it. Okay, And we'll see how that works out as we go through chapter 18. Any other questions? All right, let's, let's get through, or go into chapter 18. Now again, you've heard this many times, but if there is a doubt or a question in your mind, raise your hand and let's talk about it so that we kind of clear up those things so that you truly understand the meaning of this. 18 is a rather short chapter, but there's a lot in it. Now, let's set the scene. The apostles, along with Christ, minus Judas, have now left the upper room where they celebrated the Passover. Whether that long prayer of chapter 17 was uttered at this time or before or some other time, we don't know. And it's not that important as to when. The chapter and the prayer itself is extremely important. So let's look at it now that the apostles have left the upper room and they are making their way across the Kidron Valley over to the Mount of Olives, a garden which is called Gethsemane, meaning olive press. Okay. It says, when he had said this, in other words, get up and go, let's get up and go, Jesus went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley, Kidron in this case in the ancient Aramaic means valley of death. And it was because most of it was used as a cemetery outside the walls of old Jerusalem. They went to where there was a garden into which he and his disciples entered. Judas and his betrayer also knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So it's a place that they had been to many times, all right? And I've been there, there's a beautiful chapel there, but the rest of it looks like any other orchard you'd ever been to. Okay. So Judas got a band of soldiers and guards from the chief priest and the Pharisees and went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. That's like tigers and lions and bears, so much. Jesus, knowing everything that was going to happen, again, this is stressed many times, went out and said to them, Whom are you looking for? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. So he said to them, I am. And of course, he means I am he. But the I am, again, was that word or that phrase that the Jewish people felt was so sacred that they would not utter it. Okay. Judas, his betrayer, was also with them. And when he said to them, I am, they turned away and fell to the ground. Well, that is more of a, a theological statement, as it says right down in the uh, commentary, oh, <coughs> about a quarter of a, a way from the bottom. It says this should be understood as a theological rather than a, an historical statement, meaning that they might have gone, oh, you know, he uttered the, the, the sacred word that is not 
to be uttered by anybody. But being God, he could. So again he asked them, Whom are you looking for? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. And so if you are looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill what he had said, quote, I have not lost any of those you gave me. And then Simon Peter, ah, poor Peter, here we go again, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear. Ooh, that hurts. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its scabbard. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father gave me? You see, unfortunately, poor Peter didn't learn. Remember, he took Jesus to task a couple times before, you know, and said, you know, God forbid, Master, that you should do such a thing. In other words, be crucified and so forth and so on. And here he's saying it again. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father gave me? See, the mission that the Father has given him. So the band of soldiers, the tribune and the Jewish guards, seized Jesus, bound him, and brought him to Annas first. Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest that year. All right, now he was for several years, for that matter. All right, it was sort of a family, an incestuous uh, kind of uh, job. It was Caiaphas who had counseled the Jews at an earlier date that it was better that one man should die rather than the people. Meaning here is that one of the things that the Jewish people were afraid of when Jesus began to uh, attract such large crowds and persuade them uh, to do things that were somewhat against Jewish laws, they were afraid that the Romans would step in and create a problem uh, and upset the uh, lifestyle that these leaders had kind of come to enjoy. And of course, that did happen, but it was the Jewish people's fault uh, in the end. Simon Peter and another disciple, remember John never uses his own name in the Gospel of John. He always refers to himself in some other way. In this case, it is the other's disciple. Most often, he will use the beloved disciple, um, but he never uses his own personal name. Now, the other disciple was known to the high priest, and he entered the courtyard of the high priest with Jesus. But Peter stood out at the gate, stood at the gate outside. So the other disciple, that is John, the acquaintance of the high priest, went out and spoke to the gatekeeper and brought Peter in. Then the maid, who was the, gate, who was the gatekeeper, said to Peter, Are you not one of this man's disciples? And he said, I am not. <coughs> Now the slaves and the guards were standing around a charcoal fire that they had made because it was cold and were warming themselves. Peter was also standing there keeping warm. 
the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken publicly to the world. I have always taught in a synagogue or the temple area where all the Jews gathered. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said this, one of the temple guards uh, standing there struck Jesus and said, is that the way to answer the high priest? Remember, the high priest was even more important than King Herod. He was really the ruler of Israel at the time. Okay? Although it was a sort of unofficial, as far as the Romans were concerned, it was the reigning job. <clears throat> when he had said this, one of the temple guards standing there struck Jesus and said, Is that any way to answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong. But if I have spoken rightly, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas. Now, if Caiaphas was the high priest, why did he go to Annas? Okay? Because being the father-in-law, he actually had more power and more say-so because he was an elderly gentleman at the time. Caiaphas was relatively new at the job. And so Annas really had the power, and so out of deference to him, they take Jesus to Annas first. But it was Caiaphas who really had to make the rule. Now Simon Peter was standing there keeping warm, and they said to him, and this is, of course, uh, the next time, you are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, a relative of the one whose ear Peter had cut off, said, didn't I see you in the garden with him? Again, Peter denied it, and immediately the cock crowed. So it must have been relatively early morning. And of course, you remember that Jesus had predicted after Peter gave this boast, you know, about he would follow Jesus to the death and so forth. And Jesus said, you will, eh? Well, before the night's out, you're going to deny me three times. The trial before Pilate. This was interesting in a way because John doesn't get involved in a lot of the details that are in the other Gospels about what is going on here. Herod isn't even mentioned in this Gospel. And that is because John wants you to focus on what's really important. How Peter, even though he was designated to be the lead apostle, could still fall. And in a way that has actually trickled down as a, um, you might say, explanation of why the church over 2,000 years has survived, but in spite of the many 
problems that the human element within the church uh, have fallen. Well, Peter did it, so everyone else is going to do it. Then they brought Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium. The praetorium is like uh, the Roman guard uh, house. It was morning, and they themselves did not enter the praetorium in order not to be defiled. Oh, my. So that they could eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and said, What charge do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If he were not a criminal, he would not have ha- we would not have handed him over to you. Which didn't really answer Pilate's question. At this Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews answered him, We do not have the right to execute anyone in order that the word... Well, let's put a stop there. We do not have the right to execute anyone. And that's true. Thou shalt not kill, being one of the Ten Commandments, was held very strictly by the Jewish people. But yet they would do it when they felt it was necessary. Okay. For example, what about Stephen? St. Stephen that we learned about in the last session in the Acts of the Apostles. They stoned him. What about the woman caught in adultery? Uh, they were ready to stone her. What about John the Baptist? He was beheaded by Herod himself. You see, so the law was upheld when they wanted to, but when it was, you know, when it suited their needs, uh, they ignored it. Uh, in the commentary under that section, it says, um, Seven brief scenes. Well, we'll talk more about that next time. Pilate shuttles back and forth between the inside of the praetorium where Jesus is being held and the crowd in the outer courtyard. These symbolize, respectively, the spiritual realm that Jesus represents and the word and the world that rejects his revelation. Pilate is caught between these two worlds feeling the pull of both, but in the end he opts for the world of Caesar rather than that of God. You know, down below, right in the middle of that page, it says, the Passover is approaching and they do not want to defile themselves. They are worried about committing sacrilege by defilement, but are ignorantly preparing to perform the greatest sacrilege of all time, the killing of the Lamb of God. It says, we do not have, they yelled back, you know, the Jews answered, we do not have the right to execute anyone in order that the the word of Jesus might be fulfilled Uh, that he said, indicating the kind of death he would die. So Pilate went back into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own? Or have others told you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation 
and the chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom does not belong to this world. If my kingdom did belong to this world, my attendants would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not here. So Pilate said to them, Then you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? But that little section right there, For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth or has a committed relationship with Christ listens to his voice. That kind of sums up really the whole mission of Christ. See, Christ never talks about the resurrection as such. It is mentioned a few times. Uh, for example, uh, when they come down from the transfiguration, which we just celebrated last Sunday, um, he says, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. But the apostles immediately start thinking, oh, what does this raising from the dead mean? Even though, even though Christ raised Lazarus, the centurion son, the son of the widow of name, it seems to me there was someone else. But were those resurrections? No. They were returned to normal life. A resurrection which only Christ has experienced is something entirely different. So we got to really zero in on that fact. There were others that were raised from the dead after Christ and long before Christ in the Old Testament. Those were not resurrections. Those were returning the individual to a normal life. No. Uh, that's somewhat debatable. It's probably the Father who did it, but since they're all part of God, yes. yes. But I would rather think of it as the Father's acceptance indication. When he had said this, he again went out to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. This is the second time he, he has said this. Um, or maybe it's the first time. This is Pilate saying this uh, to the Jews. I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I release one prisoner to you at Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Not this one, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a revolutionary 
There's a little interesting thing about that name. Anyone know what that is? Oh, the, the definition is right there. <coughs> B-A-R in Jewish names is always interpreted as the son of, such as Johnson in, you know, Scandinavian names, Johnson or whatever, all right? A-B-B-A-S. So what you have here is son of the father. Okay. Son of the father. And what they're doing, of course, this is um, this is um, a bandit, I guess he was. Yeah. But God in Jesus is son with a capital of the father with a capital. One is traded for the other. Kind of an interesting play on words. We're going to leave it here because chapter 19 is a rather long chapter, but I want you to kind of take what we've done tonight and read it in the same way, all right, with the whole idea <coughs> that um, there's so much between the lines. One thing that I didn't write on the home reading assignment that I wanted to, and if you'll take that, which is on the other side of that agenda, and add Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is important because we have given you here not only chapter 19, but a portion of the book of Isaiah and two verses out of two other psalms, and for some reason or other, I left off Psalm 22. Please read the whole thing, because it is important. And you will hear that on Good Friday if you attend the afternoon Good Friday services. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, Jesus utters that from the cross partly because he's human, but partly because he's telling his crucifiers that they are fulfilling something that was written about that whole scene many, many years before. But that if you go to the second part of that psalm, it's divided into two parts, if you go to the second part of that psalm, you'll see that it also reflects the resurrection. It is a victory song. The first part is a lament. The second part is a victory song. 
if you study the Psalms, all of them fall into about seven categories, right? There happens to be seven penitential psalms that are very important, and Psalm 51 is my favorite of all of those. Psalm 22 is also in there, penitential psalms. So take a look at that. But the psalms all have titles and meanings, and they fall into various uh, designated groups. Um, Studying the Psalms, I think, is extremely important. We did that three or four years ago here. Okay. Any questions on this or on the Good Friday services that are coming up? It's, yes, Steve? Yes, he is. Well, that's right, but you know he's not backing down, and it's he's sort of standing his ground. He's probably it's probably said with you know some dignity that to us sounds a little sarcastic, uh, but it's to let everyone know that Jesus is in control. And that's so important. Uh, we don't want anyone to feel that he's kind of a wimp and he's just going, you know, doing this because he doesn't have any recourse. But he does. He is, he said, if my kingdom was of this world, I would have all kinds of uh, attendants um, to protect me and so forth and so on. Yeah, very good. Yes. Any other questions? Well, that's, that's in a way you're right. What Norm has just said here, uh, is that it sounds like a chess game, uh, where, you know, we're sort of the pawns in there, and yet we, with our free will, we can check the pawns. Um, in a way, that's true. The whole idea is the battle between good and evil has raged from the time of Adam and Eve, and will continue to uh, rage less uh, less uncontrolled um, now since the death and resurrection of Christ until the end of time. And that is because the devil is not really after mankind. He is using mankind to get back at God. All right for putting him out of what he thought was his uh, special spot in heaven, according to theologists. Yeah. So you have this constant battle uh, between good and evil, God being, of course, the good, Satan being evil, and mankind caught in between because mankind has both a little bit of God in him, and he has a little bit of the devil in him. Some have a little more than others. So, we have to kind of look at it that way and say, which side am I going to be on? And it's unfortunate 
that a lot of people don't see it and don't care. They don't make any distinction. And just following rote uh, religious observances is not cutting it. It's got to be a personal choice. That's what your faith is all about. If you are just going to church on Sunday to fulfill your obligation, why bother going at all? Okay. Because you haven't really done anything. So many people say that, oh, I just had an email today. I should have brought it in. Maybe I can paraphrase it. Uh, why go to church? Uh, so many people say, well, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm tired today or it's, it's raining outside or whatever. Why bother going to church? Well, I don't get anything out of going to church. Well, the thing is, if you don't get anything out of church, it's your own fault because worshiping is putting yourself into the service. Worship is giving a part of yourself and it is only when you give a part of yourself to God do you get anything in return. So if you haven't taken the time to do the giving, you're not going to get the getting. Pardon the grammar. All right. Uh, this little email I got today is one of these funnies, but I'll see if I can paraphrase it. Uh, it's the guy that says, uh, why, why go to church? I've gone to church for 30 years and I've heard, uh, 30,000 sermons and I can't remember a single one of them and I can't see where they've done any good. And so the priest overhears him and he said, well, he says, look at it. No, it wasn't the priest, obviously, because he said, it was a friend, perhaps. Let's leave it at that. Uh, the friend says, well, he said, my wife and I have been married for 30 years and she's cooked me 30,000 meals and if I uh, hadn't eaten them and they were pretty good, uh, I wouldn't be here today because I would be so malnourished I would have died. But you see the connection? The connection is that in the Mass we get spiritual nourishment if our mind and heart is really being put into it. So I'll try to bring that in a printed form next year. Not a question but a comment on the opening of the passionate narrative. Uh, Father Lewis says, while the other gospels portray the crucifixion as terrible and tragic, for John it is a glorification of Jesus. And I think that's a paraphrase of what you told us right off the beginning. Yes. But it, it, it certainly gives an insight and a more feeling to the, to the gospel. Yes, yes. It is the culmination, <coughs> the high point of Jesus' mission of offering himself to the Father. And that is why one of the, 11, of the, one of the last of the seven last words is, it is finished. Meaning his mission is finished. But it just happens to be the same words that are in the Jewish Passover meal. Even today. I was going to bring in the Haggadah which is the official program and I forgot about it. Out of sight, out of mind. I'll do that hopefully next week. 
All right. Um, but I'm sorry. Um, the whole idea of Christ's glorification comes from, and I said before, I think, the first night, the glory that is given is really a, a higher version of the victory. You know, the Olympics are just ended and everybody is probably still in euphoria over the celebration of their winnings and so forth and they get a little gold, uh, not so little anymore. It's getting pretty big now. It seems like every year or every time it gets bigger and bigger. Um, but, you know, when they first started out, all they got was a laurel wreath and it didn't uh, last too long. But it meant a great deal to them. Uh, the resurrection is really the glorification of Christ in recognition and acceptance for what he accomplished for mankind. And it is really a glorification of God because it was God's plan of salvation to begin with that started the whole program. And so they both glorify each other by the fact that one sent the other on a mission which was now completed with his passion, death, passion and death. And then the resurrection is a sign of God's acceptance of that. And that is why the glory flows between the two. Unfortunately, the Holy Spirit hasn't come into the picture yet, and that won't be until Pentecost Sunday, when he comes into his own and his role and time period as our diagram has shown. Any other questions? Can't let you get out 15 minutes early. After all. No other questions. I'd like to ask a question as to what do Jewish people they thought that Christ wasn't, he wasn't God, but he was a prophet, is that what it is? There's well, now, uh, today, today yeah. most people today recognize him as a prophet. Yeah, just like they don't accept Mohammed, obviously, uh, but they do recognize him as sort of a prophet. And, you know, Buddha also the same way. Um, remember, faith is a gift. You have it or you don't have it. If you have it, you have to nourish it to keep it going. And God, for 2,000 years, tried to hand out faith to his chosen people. And many, many times they ignored him, uh, turned against him. He would still go out and bring them back. But enough is enough. And after a while, he said, no more. And that is signified, as most Bible scholars will agree and attest to, by the fact that even after Christ's death and resurrection, at the time of his death, there is purported to be a, a fairly major earthquake 
that takes place. But at the end of that 40 years, the temple is destroyed. The temple was symbolic of God's presence among the Jewish people. It was thought by the Jewish people at the time that that was God's holy seat. And in fact, they had part of the Ark of the Covenant up until the Babylonian captivity was built in such a way that it was used uh, symbolically as a seat for God. It was built that way. All right? And even after the return of the Jews from exile in Babylon, when they rebuilt the temple, of course, the Ark of the Covenant had disappeared and was presumably destroyed. Uh, they still used the Holy of Holies as symbolic uh, seat of God. All right. And God went along with that <coughs> until Christ came. And when that was, when Christ was rejected, God still gave them 40 years to hopefully see the light and get religion. And when they didn't, he had the temple destroyed by using the Romans. And so from that time on, uh, the temple, which was the symbol of God's presence among the Jewish people, was no longer. And that has now taken the place of all committed Christians who are truly committed uh, to a relationship with Christ, and Christ now lives within them. So it's, uh, it's a fascinating, I think it's a fascinating story. Uh, and you can only really appreciate it when you start reading some of the Old Testament books, particularly First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and the book and First and Second Chronicles, which all sort of uh, gives you the background and the story of the time of the kings and the time of the prophets within Judaism. Uh, and I, I just think it's a very fascinating story. Yes, ma'am. Well, remember, well, the hope, the hope is and always has been. The lady asked, what is the mode of salvation for the Jews today if they don't accept Christ? The hope is that eventually they will at some point in time. Uh, and remember, as I've said before, anyone who lives in the spirit of true agape love has God living within them. And God will not condemn somebody within whom he's living. Okay? So, and that is in John chapter 4. The first letter of John chapter 4. Okay. Any other questions? Well, it's not raining out, so I think we can all go home safely. Let's say a prayer. Father, we thank you for blessing us not only with the Gospels, but with their interpretation through John and uh, through Paul and so many others. Help us now to understand and take to heart what these great writers have written. Help us just not to go on hearsay, but to study it 
and to live it. That is when the word of God really comes to life, is when we live it. And so help us to live it, we ask. We thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.